Okay, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Um, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of 1 John chapter 3, and as we do that, we're going to let the children be dismissed for junior church. 1 John chapter 3 is where I'd like you to turn this morning. Let's begin reading just for the sake of context in verse 28 of chapter 2. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is righteous has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now are we the children of God. And we, what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we will see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, this is a text that lays a clear emphasis on the idea that the body of Christ, the church universal and the church local, is the family of God. It is a text that exalts the idea that God is indeed our heavenly Father, and we are His sons and daughters. Now, the concept of family is a powerful concept. For many, it evokes very negative emotions because of struggles with mom or dad, a broken home, a dysfunctional home. And so often there's a, there's a struggle with this concept. But on the flip side, for everyone that has struggled in a home that is broken, and the truth is, none of us grow up in perfect homes. All of us experience some level of brokenness, the effect of sin, and some level of dysfunction is present in most homes. But there's something in every one of us that longs for normal, right? That, that wants it to be good, so that when we hear the concept or the thought or the word family, father, we want it to be a good thing, a powerful thing in our lives. We know that many of us struggle with it, but it is a concept that God uses in the Word to talk about what it means to be a Christian. John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus uses the concept of being born again, right? Being born from above. That idea is to be born into a family. In Galatians 3 verses 26 and 28, the Bible says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ, and if you belong to Christ, you are heirs of God. Now, being heirs is part of what? It's part of being family, united to God. Ephesians 2, 18 and 19 says this, For through Him we have access to the Father, and we are part of God's household. So you'll find this theme just emerges over and over through the New Testament, the picture that the people of God are no longer a nation like they were in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, they are the people of God and are referred to as his family. Okay, and what do you find? You find a deeper intimacy, a deeper relationship with God because of what we find in the personal work of Christ. We are family. We are God's children. And this morning, I want us to focus some of our attention on the idea of what it means to be a son or daughter of God's. What are the ramifications of that statement? You are sons, you are daughters of God, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. It is part of our identity. And what that identity in Christ points to is this idea. 
it points to the fact that Jesus intends for you to experience victory over sin by remembering and recognizing and rehearsing the fact that you are part of his forever family. In other words, this truth about family, about being sons and daughters of God, brings with it implied promises that affect our past, our present, and our future life. And it's in that sense that John picks up this theme of being sons and daughters of God, of being part of God's family and household as a means of saying God is for you. He desires for you in your Christian life to experience success and victory over sin in this life. Knowing that you are his family is a truth that aims to help you and support you and encourage you. As Christians, we often struggle with our behavior because in the day-to-day of life, in the struggles and in the battle that is the Christian life, we often lack a clear picture or have a false perception of what it is to be a Christian. We often think in terms of our standing before God, just in terms of being made right and forgiven. But in the gospel, God does more than that for us. He doesn't simply forgive us and let us go on our own. He forgives us and brings us into his family. He's the judge that pardons us of our sin and then adopts us as his son, which would be an unheard of concept in the world that we live in. But it is what God in his grace does for us. It is part of our new identity. When we fail to grasp clearly our identity as children of God, think what happens is something like this. We, we live a defeated life and we fail to experience the victory that God wants us to have living above our normal, sinful, fleshly tendencies. And I think what God wants to do through this text is to encourage us to realize that we are sons and daughters. And along with that relationship with God comes power from God to live a different kind of life. He aims to bring transformation to us. Look down with me, if you would, just real quickly for the sake of context, at verse 7 of this chapter. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. Okay, why did Christ come? Christ came to set you free, to give you a new identity, so that in that identity, you would enjoy a fullness of life. You would enjoy victory over sin. Verse 9. No one is, who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed, now listen to this, God's seed remains in him and he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Do you see the connection? To be brought into the family of God is to be brought into a place of amazing support and strength and love. And in that relationship, God aims to make you successful in your Christian life and in your walk and in your battle with sin. He doesn't want you to go around as a defeated individual. The truth is that many of us at, at certain times and in seasons in our life, we experience this battle, this struggle. How do you get out of that? How do you find a place of victory and confidence and joy? How do you become assured God loves me? Well, what you have to do is claim this identity that he gives you in Christ. Through the new birth, you become sons and daughters of God. And His resources are poured into you. His seed remains in you. 
You take on his spiritual DNA, if you will. He pours victory and power into your life so that you can begin to experience a level of and the joy of success because you are his child and his aim is that you would resemble him. Now, let me ask you this question. When you think about the concept of being a son or daughter of God towards whom God has poured his resources, does it make you feel special? Does it make you feel loved? And see, for many of us, it, 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 many of us it's, it's a concept that's out there. We don't, we don't soak it in. We don't allow this truth to saturate us and change us and assure us. But it is, in fact, I believe, the aim of God in this text. That we, as we read through verses 1 to 3 of 1 John, we would feel that we are, in the eyes of God, special, unique objects of His love. And that as we begin to meditate on that truth and own that new identity that is ours in Christ, we would be changed by it. It would affect us, not simply intellectually, but it would affect us in our hearts and begin to alter our behavior. Every believer is special because of what Christ has done for them. Not because of our achievement, not because of how much we have changed ourselves. But we are special because of what God has done in us and through us by the power of the Spirit and through the work of Christ. We didn't become His children by performance, by trying harder. We became His children by grace through faith alone. We became His children because He loves us and aims to do powerful and glorious things in our lives. And so the truth is, we are special. We have a unique standing with God. Now, I want us to talk about how this Unique standing with God as sons and daughters affects our past, our present, and our future. And I just want to look at how this text moves in these three directions. So let's look again at verse 1. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. We should be called the children of God. Now, the word's interesting at the beginning of this verse because it, it's meant to give you a sense of astonishment or amazement at this work of God. So the idea is, behold, and, and in the original it's like this, from what country is that kind of love? Right, why? Because the love of God for us is so extraordinary, is so unlike other loves that we experience at a human level, that the question becomes, where did a person who loves like that, where did they come from? What country is that kind of love from? And it's, it's to say something like this. The love that God has for you is an alien love. It is unlike any other love that you have experienced. Now, I feel like this in, in my own relationship with my parents. I feel like I have a good relationship with my parents. I believe that my parents love me and would do anything for me. Okay, that's how I honestly feel. But I know that my, my parents at times let me down. There were times that there was a, a sense of discouragement in my relationship with them. Why? Because they're not perfect, right? And so, so their love is human. It's, it's ordinary, but special to me. Okay, but when we talk about the love of God, the, the, you know, the way that the writer says it here is he's saying, from what country does this love come from? It is extraordinary. It is, it is, it is attracting attention. It is fascinating and amazing and life-altering. Behold the love, this great love that the Father has poured out upon us. It is a supernatural love. 
And then he says this. It is a love that he has lavished on us. Some of your text translations may say that he has bestowed upon us. And the idea is this. In the past, if you know Christ, the love of God set upon you and changed you. It was bestowed with an ongoing consequence and effect. The idea, it is given to us in an irrevocable fashion. It cannot be taken away. It is bestowed. It is given. It is an inheritance from God for the blessing and benefit of everyone who places faith and trust in him. Now, the question that naturally comes to mind is this. Why did God adopt us into his family? Why did he do that? Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5 makes this rather amazing statement. It says, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus. Okay, so we come into the family of God through faith in Christ and through the grace that comes to us through his shed blood. That's how we come in. But here's what he says. He, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Christ in accordance with his pleasure and plan. I'm going to think about that. If you're in Christ, why are you in Christ? Is it because there was something in you so attractive and irresistible that God couldn't stay away from you? Okay? Like, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story, okay? I ran into some thing, a pet, okay? I'll say it that way. I'm trying to think. If I call a dog a thing, then I'm going to get an email about that, so... Driving down the road the other day, saw a dog on the road, saw a man walking beside the road, and saw a car trying to avoid the dog. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I pulled up in my van, opened the door, and I thought, I'll yell to the dog and tell him to come here. So I yelled and called to the dog. He runs over to the van, jumps up in, sits on my lap, and starts licking my arm. Okay? Now, what was he doing? He was earning affection. Right? And you know what? That in, in moments, that dog had my heart, okay? Flipped around his collar, found his name was Copper, found a phone number, called the owner, and went to the house, and I'm, I'm get, dropping this dog off at this guy's house, and the guy comes over to the car, and the dog is backing up into my lap, doesn't want anything to do with this guy. And I'm thinking, well, what's going on here? Right, now, what happened in that moment? What happened? That dog started licking my arm. I, I'm not a big pet lover. I enjoy them, but... He had my heart like that. There was something attractive about that pet and its, its way, its demeanor, that attracted me to it. If that dog jumped on my lap and started biting my arm, okay, was an enemy against me, what would I have done? I would have you know, kicked him through the pearly gates, right? <laughs> but what happened? There was something attractive in him and it drew me to him. That's the nature of human love. There's something in the object, in the, in the beauty of a child that God brings into your life that causes you to say, this child is irresistible. There's a woman on this planet that at one time thought that about me. Okay. <laughs> it's not my wife. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's, that's the love of God, folks. It is, it, who does he love? He doesn't love cute, cuddly children. Remember what we talked about two weeks ago? He loves those that are enemies against his will and plan. He loves those that did bite against him and kick against him. Remember, this what, what the Apostle Paul could say. He kicks against the goads. He resisted the work of Christ. He was hostile to God. Folks, that's how God describes us. If you see yourself as 
cute and cuddly spiritually, and that's why God, he just couldn't imagine eternity without you. And so he saved you. He set his love on you, and he lavished, lavished it on you, and he saved you. Because that's who you were. Then you will never appreciate the love, the family love of God. Because you have a diminished view of it. You have a weak view of it. The love of God that astonishes and amazes us is a love that is poured out on enemies. God moved in Paul's direction when he was in opposition to God. Do you understand that? Paul was on his way to Damascus to take Christians, people in Jesus, to oppose them and to kill some of them. That's when God confronted Paul. Not when Paul turned and said, oh God, I am such a miserable mess. Would you save me? No. When he was still in rebellion, when he was still resisting the love and purposes of God in Christ, it was then that God lavished his love on Paul. Folks, that's what makes God's love amazing, isn't it? It's the objects of his love that should astonish us. When you love your child, don't take credit for it. Don't think of yourself as such a wonderful and amazing parent. Thank God that he's given you that kind of love. But compare that love to the love that God has for you. A love that is unconditional, unmerited, undeserved. Your identity is this. You were loved by God and drawn towards his family prior to any response from you. He set his love on you. Let that truth settle down on you and amaze you. And say to yourself, you know, seriously, if I told you that dog jumped in the van, started chewing on my arm, and I took him home and said to my wife, I think this would be a great pet for our house. Okay, you'd say, what? That, that's unusual. That's rare. I have a friend that has a dog that has bitten her twice. And I'm like, that's what God made weapons for, you know? It's like, why, why would you keep a dog that does that to you? Why would you do that? Why does she do it? She has unconditional love. She is a godlike love. Okay, and that's a love that's hard to come by. When you experience it, let it amaze you, let it astonish you, and let it change you. In the past, what did God do? God set his love. He placed that love upon us. And that is the idea here. The word lavish literally means to bestow in a permanent way. Okay, just let that settle in. A love of enemies. Ephesians 2, a love of the sons of disobedience, of objects of wrath who now receive passion and love from God. His love is unconditional in a world where we, used to, we are used to a love that says, I will love you if or because. With God, it is simply, I love you. And then we're saying, well, why does he love us? Well, I mean, because we always think there has to be a reason. There has to be a cause. You know, you know what? I heard Ed Clowney say this a few weeks ago in an on a, on a audio series I'm listening to when I mow the grass. He said, God loves you because he loves you. And that's it. You know what that means? It means I don't have to reform my life to cause God to love me. I don't have to break my habits in order for God to love me. He loves you because he loves you. The same thing is true for every parent. For every godly parent, you know what you have for your child? You have an unconditional love. And some parents go this far. I, I did this with my girls. So then, you know what? I'll love you no matter what. No matter what you do, I will still love you. Because the relationship I have with you 
is unbreakable. There's nothing you can do to sever the cord of the fact that I am your father. Now, what's the danger of that kind of love? What's the danger? The danger is that it could be abused. You see, and there's a fear, isn't there? There's a fear that if, if you express that kind of love to your kids, that my love for you is unconditional. What could happen? Well, they could abuse that love. They could take advantage of that love. Right? But I believe the opposite is true, and I think it's what God is doing for us here. You know what God continues to express for us throughout the New Testament? He continues to express for us this unconditional love that he loves you because he loves you. Why does he do that? I believe God does that in eternity past and in the context of our lives as Christians. He brings us into his family through a passionate plan of love. Because that love that he, that he promises to you is stronger than any boundary that he could place around you. Do you see? So I can say to my daughters, don't ever do anything wrong. Don't, you know, don't do this. If you ever do this, and threats, okay? Threats don't change people. You know what changes people? Knowing that God loves them. And what I would encourage you to do this morning is meditate on the love of God. Okay, let that love, amazing love, soak in. And let it so overwhelm you that it doesn't cause you to say, whoa, you, well, you mean I, I'm so loved that God would never change his love? And that's correct. Well, does that mean I can do whatever I want to do? Yes. That's what it means. But if you know God loves you and you meditate on that love of God for you, you will find that in the spirit you are unable to do whatever you want to do. Do you see? Because that love of God, the Apostle Paul said, the love of Christ does what? It constrains us. It holds us and it binds us to the task of Christian living. So the first thought that Paul wants to, want, or that John wants to kind of impress upon these believers is the assurance, first of all, of God's love. The second thing that he goes after, second half of verse 1, Behold what love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And then he, he makes this amazing statement. He says, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. God. Okay, so two times in this text, you find this statement. Now we are called the children of God. And then the beginning of verse two, now we are the children of God. Now, what does it mean to be a child in a home setting? Now, here's what it means. Okay, it means something along the lines of an unconditional acceptance, right? It means something along the lines of this idea of unconditional acceptance. And the way that, that, that John goes after this from two, two sides, he says, we should be called, that is officially designated or bestowed upon a title, child of God. Okay, and then in, 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 in the rest of the verse he says, and that is what we are. And so the idea is God bestows upon us a title that changes our identity we are no longer sons of wrath and daughters of wrath. We become sons and daughters of God. We are given a new identity. And in that identity, there is this concept of acceptance. And so John can say, he's called us sons and daughters. You know what? The result is, that's what we are. We are called that by God. And then the beginning of verse 2, I think he makes this statement a little bit clearer. He says, dear friends, which is this familial affection... Now we are children of God. Now, as you go through the New Testament, here's what you're going to find. 
And, and let me just say this. In verse 2, okay, in the original language, the first word in verse 2 is the word now. Okay, which is to say what? It is to say that we have a status that is true of us right now. It's not, a, it's not that we later will become children of God, sons and daughters. It's that we are that right now. That is our current standing and status. And so in Ephesians 2, 6 that we looked at two weeks ago, he says we have right now been raised and seated with him. Romans 8, 15 through 17. We are heirs with Christ. That is his resources are our resources. And as a result of that, what do we do? When we go to God in prayer, what do we say? We say, Abba, Father. We say, Papa, Daddy. In the Jewish way, Abba, deep term of affection. In the Greek world, Father, that paternal relationship, unbreakable. Okay, that is our new identity that gives us acceptance with God. And it's for that reason that the writer of Hebrews then goes on to say this. In Hebrews chapter 4, he says, Since we have such a great high priest who has cleansed us and forgiven us and made us sons and daughters of God. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may find help in our time of need. See, what happens when you realize that you are a son and daughter of God now, which is the emphasis of this verse, now we are. What happens? I realize that if I'm God's son and daughter, what do I have? I have the privilege of access. I can come to him freely. I can come to him boldly without reluctance and without hesitation. Because the love that God has for us is a love that is, in fact, unbreakable. And so we stand accepted by him. Romans 8, verse 35 says this. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or persecution or hardship or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered like sheep to be slaughtered. By who? By the world. Right? And that's why verse 1 says what? The world doesn't recognize you. Well, guess what? They didn't recognize Jesus either. And this is exactly the thought that Paul goes after. He says, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Who are we treated like? We're treated like Christ, the Lamb of God. Why? Because the world doesn't recognize and accept us and it didn't recognize and accept who jesus christ right but it but who recognizes us god is the one that recognizes us and accepts us as his sons and daughters and so paul can go on to say this no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us when in the past with an effect in the present i am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers. Neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, folks, what is that saying? It's saying that the family love of God for us is unbreakable. It's to say there is nothing you can do to sever the cord of your relationship with God. He loves you because he loves you. My dad's name is Don Hoff. I am his son. There is nothing that I can do that will ever sever or change the fact that I am his son, right? Now, can I disrupt the harmony of the relationship that I have with my father? Well, the answer is yes. 
And sometimes that's what happens to us as Christians. We sever or break the harmony of our relationship with God, and we think we've broken the actual relationship with God. And what do we do? We tend to struggle and doubt and fear and discouragement, and we forget that we're sons and daughters of God. How do you get back out of that? Like the prodigal son did, right? In the depth of his sin, in his slavery and bondage, what did he finally realize? I'm a son of a rich father. And in acknowledgement of that identity, sitting in that place, he said, I will go to my father. And what will I find? I'm going to find acceptance and love. He finds a whole lot more than he ever expects, right? But he knows he can leave that place of sin and go back to his father with the expectation there will be from my dad some level of affection. He expects it. And the idea is this. When you're part of a family, there are privileges that go with that, right? And one of the privileges is acceptance. I'm my dad's son on a permanent basis until the end of his or my life. I'm his son. There's nothing that can change that. And so it is with God. But what is the, what is the great privilege of this, this idea, of this, this relationship? That now we are the sons of God. Now, dear friends... What's the blessing of it? The picture of it is one of acceptance. It, 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 the idea is that you can go walking into his house and find help in your time of need. Yesterday I was out with Jessica for a ride, and I met a guy recently. His name is John. He lives up on top of Brass Castle Road. And he's, I, I'm going to call him a new acquaintance. He's not like friend, like family to me. Okay? And so I said to Jessica, oh, I'd like to introduce you to this guy named John. Not John Baker that lives up on top of the mountain, but this other guy named John. So I don't know this guy well yet. And so here's what we did. I drove down his road, hoping what? What do you think I was hoping? I was hoping I'd see his car, and I was hoping that I'd see him where? Outside. So Jesse and I drove by, and guess what I didn't see? I didn't see him outside there. Have you ever done this? I think, well, if I see him outside, I'll go sit because I'm not sure of the I'm not sure of the nature of our relationship. I don't know how close it is yet. I don't I don't feel that close to him. Okay, so drove by, didn't see him, down to the cul-de-sac, came back, driving by, looking, nope, don't see him. So what did I do? I just kept going. All right, why? I didn't have the assurance of acceptance. Now I can tell you something. All right, if one of my daughters was ever like driving past our house and up to the cul-de-sac, and they were just looking. And then they drove back down and looked again and kept going. And I would call them on the phone and say, what's going on? Well, I wasn't sure if you were home. Right? I wasn't sure if I could stop in. And what would I say? I said, okay, are you kidding me? <laughs> You're my daughter. I, I would love to see you. We, what, what there's, there's an understanding of what? Of acceptance. Now, with my new friend, John, I didn't... I didn't Drive up there and say, you know what? I saw his garage door was open, by the way. I didn't go walking into his garage and say, hey, John, how's it going? Why? I didn't have the assurance of relationship. But with God, what do we have? We have the assurance of relationship, and that means that we can come boldly into his presence and find help in our time of need. It's part of being his family. And so, folks, no matter how broken your life is, if you know Christ, no matter what's going on in your life, there is a place for you to go, and you can go there with boldness. You know what Satan wants to do? Satan wants to take your sin and drive a wedge with it between you and God. 
He wants to bind you in guilt as a child of God's so that you feel like you can't go and get help in time of need. That's what he aims to do. That's why Revelation 12 says this. That evil one, the devil, you know what he is? He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the one who seeks to cause believers to think that their relationship with God has been severed and that they are beyond rescue and beyond hope. And when Satan says that to you, I want to make a suggestion to you this morning. I want to tell you what you should say. And we sing this from time to time. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted clean. And God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Folks, you know what? Look, there is nothing in your life that can keep you from the love of God. If you know Him, if you are His child, you have the privilege of access You have acceptance. I have never thought about driving past my dad's house to see if he might be outside to find out if I might be able to go in and see him. When I go to my parents' house, I drive down the driveway and I walk into their house. Why do I do that? Because I'm his son. And this new friend, John, I don't know him that well. So I I, I have an uneasy relationship. You know what God wants you to have? He wants you to have a relationship with him of utter boldness and confidence. It's really what every parent on a good day once, right? We want our children to know you can come to me, you can ask for whatever you need, and we will do everything we can to help you. Why? You are our daughter. Oh, you are our son. Okay, with God, what do we have? We have this blessed, awesome privilege of access. And I hope you're enjoying that access with God. The last part of this text talks about the future. And I just, I love the way this works. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. All right, that's our identity. That's who you are by virtue of the work of Christ. You have been born by the power of God's love, forgiven by the blood of Christ. The result is now, dear friends, children of God you are. And, verse, second half of the verse, what we will be has not yet been made known. Now, what's the thought here? The thought here is something very glorious in your life in the future is coming. What you will be is not yet clear, but it is what? It is certain. It is what you will be. Okay, and so what is it? There's assurance of God's love. There's assurance of acceptance. And in this text, what is there? There is for every Christian the assurance of progress. That God is for you. He is working in you. And He, by His grace, is going to change you. What we will be has not been made clear yet, but it is certain that we will be that one day. Now, the Apostle Paul talks about this, doesn't he? In 2 Corinthians 12, Apostle Paul says, I know a man that was caught up into the heavens. I think he's talking about himself just in a humble way. And when I was there, what does Paul say? Paul says, I saw things that are amazing. In fact, they are so amazing and so mind-blowing and so incomprehensible for human beings on earth now that it is unlawful for me to talk about them. And what is Paul looking at? He's looking at the glories of heaven. I think he's looking at the glories of what we will be when we are with Christ forever, completely free from sin. All that God has promised to us as his children, fulfilled and completed because we are joint heirs with Christ. 
Now think about that. What we will be has not yet been made known, but, now listen to what he says, but we know that when he appears, that is when Jesus Christ comes and manifests his glorious and powerful and redeeming, saving presence. When that happens, what, what occurs? We shall be like him. Now, what is that saying? Is that we make ourselves like him? No. No. When he appears, something absolutely amazing and transformational will take place in the life of every person who trusts in Christ. And we will become what God intends for us to be as his sons and daughters. We will experience the glory of the breaking of bondage. We will experience the joy, the amazing joy of freedom. And what God here is talking about is something that the Bible describes as hope. We know that when he shall appear, or that when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And then here's what, here's what John says. He says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who has the hope that God is going to finish in your life what he has started cooperates with God. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean sinless perfection? Does it mean I, that, that in this life, in this time, I'm going to get free from sin? I, I, I don't think it's what he's saying, because you go back to 1 John 1, 8, what's he say? If anyone says without, without, he is without sin, what does he do? He deceives himself, and the truth is not in him. But what does this verse promise? This verse, I think, makes a, a bold and glorious promise that everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure what's the hope one day we will be like him that's the hope now we live in a world where hope is typically seen as wishful thinking right if i take this diet pill i hope i'll lose this much weight right that's the world we live in if i buy this lottery ticket i hope what is it? It, 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 it? Hope is is loaded with an implied uncertainty, right? Now, when Paul uses or when John uses this word here to speak about our hope of what Christ is going to do, it is a hope that is a confident and firm assurance. Okay, something I learned last Friday night that I lack hope and confidence in AAA. Okay, front tire in our van blew out. Last Friday night at midnight, we were on our way down to the shore for two days. So, ah, good, I got AAA. All right, they'll come out and they'll fix my tire and we're good to go. Because I forgot to bring the jack. So we called them at midnight. What do they say? Hey, uh, he'll be there in 25 minutes. And what did I say? Okay, great. Why? Because I'm a fool. <laughs> they called me back like 20 minutes. Hey, he's actually going to be another 25 minutes. And then what happens? My hope begins to become uncertain right two o'clock in the morning guess what a tow truck finally showed up couldn't get the tire off my car couldn't, you know, couldn't get the tire off the back of the car load the van up in the truck and get back home at three o'clock what happened to my hope and confidence in AAA? it was destroyed becca my oldest daughter kept talking me down off the cliff and said dad when he gets here don't be mad don't be upset but why was i why was i upset because my hope had been frustrated we live in a world where hope is frustrated, don't we? 
You know what God says? God says, I'm going to finish in you what I started. And what do we sometimes do? Sometimes we read the world's definition of hope into our relationship with God. And we lack assurance and confidence that what God has started in me, he is going to complete. Well, this text does what? It aims to say, look, you're a son and daughter of God. You have a familial relationship with him that is, in fact, unbreakable. And in that unbreakable relationship, he is devoted to the completion of what he has begun in your life. Now, let that settle in. What's your identity? Your identity is that you are a son and daughter of God. God is devoted to you in a perfectly, perfect, heavenly, fatherly love. He'll never let go of you. He aims one day in the coming of his son to bring you to everything that he aims for you to experience in Christ. That is the plan of God. And everyone who has this hope in him does what? He he is so overwhelmed. She is so overwhelmed by the love of God that has come to them in Christ that they strive to be holy. Do you see? Not out of duty. Not, Not because if I don't do well today, God won't love. No. Everyone who has this hope, this unconditional promise from God, you know what they do? And it's the evidence of conversion. I I, I challenge you, read through the rest of this text. The evidence of conversion is a ceasing of sinfulness and a growth in holiness. The evidence of conversion is not perfection in your life. It is an increasing hatred of sin and an increasing love for righteousness. And what are you doing? You're being changed from glory to glory. Okay? Okay? And God is, please, he is your father. He is for you. He is devoted to you with an unbreakable love and a plan that cannot be altered because he has the power to make it happen. Would you pray with me this morning?